this reminds me of my first experience in radio was back in the early 80s. People with disability and mental health. There's always controversy with us. The mysteries of the mind and consciousness. And we might get to the bottom of something or we might start something new. We're going to run the gamut and we're going to have a good time. Waking Braves. No, not Waking Braves. We're Breaking Waves. Breaking Waves? Breaking Waves. Breaking Waves. Hello, folks. You're listening to Breaking Waves. I'm Riley. And I'm John. And today we're starting a new season and we're going to continue on the theme of travel. For the last nearly three years, John and I have been traveling together and I started working for John as um, an NDIS worker. And so we've gone to a lot of different places, right, John? Indeed. I have a lot of um, cameras, which is an interesting pastime for a visually or legally blind person. And one of the things that we've done together is travel about to a whole lot of places, uh, getting some footage, taking pictures, meeting people, and going to places that um, I've always wanted to go to but never quite got there. And today we're going to talk about one of those places and some of the people that we met. That's right. And, you know, mentioning it's an uncommon pastime for visually impaired, also just traveling to, just traveling in general and going to different hotels and motels, that's uncommon for uh, for blind people. Like uh, most of the places that we've gone to, you know, they didn't, weren't that used to having to handle like a service dog, for example. Yeah, you'd think in this day and age that there'd be a, a general uh, sense of understanding about um, guide dogs and um, their access to different public places and the places that everybody else goes. But um, interestingly, um, I've had some uh, experiences since I've been using a guide dog, and I've had two dogs now. Um, I've my first dog, Angie, I uh, had her for 13 years, and I have my second dog now, Ivy, who I've had for about four years. And Ivy has traveled with us to quite a few places over the last couple of years. Mm. And um, we've had a few hurdles. <laughs> um, generally speaking, the transportation system works fairly well. Um, and having Riley with me is great because I can negotiate those um Obstacles, I guess, that, that I come across when I'm trying to get around the city and, and negotiate uh, systems that aren't set up for um, impaired people. Uh, you know, stuff as simple as uh, crossing the road or ordering something in a shop um, sometimes has all kinds of obstacles when you um, look perfectly normal. Um, I present as a normal-looking person. Uh, I don't have... <laughs> Uh, like white eyes or <laughs> um, my eyeballs look normal. And in fact, I do have a little bit of vision and I usually try and uh, look uh, at the person I'm talking to. So I I appear to be uh, fully mm. functional, whereas in reality, I can't really always tell um, what I'm looking at or who I'm talking mm. to. Sometimes I don't know where the voice is coming from, particularly when I'm in a shop full of people. So it's, it's great to have someone with me um, at my side. And... Uh, for the most part, like, you know, we, we've we not been turned away with uh, 
with the magical dog at hand. But uh, yeah, sometimes like people get confused or they don't know what the rules are about service dogs. I guess it's also a reflection of how they just don't have vision impaired people staying with, that have dogs. Like it's like a matter of inexperience on the I part. I think of, that's what it's really about. Mm. Um, there is um, a fair amount of. Uh, education around the subject I think at the level of uh, corporations and businesses and um, but on the street level there just aren't that many um, blind people with canes or dogs around most of the time and this is the problem I've had when I've um, tr- tried to enter you know even shopping centers that have security guards that are, a lot of them um, you know they have kind of uh, minimal security training but they certainly uh i've come across a lot of people who don't actually know what a guide dog is they right. just think it's a pet and they just keep going no pets mm. so but fortunately uh seeing eye dogs give me a copy of the uh, domestic animal act and that's the piece of legislation that gives um visually impaired people the, the right to access public areas with a dog so i have that laminated in my pocket and i pull it out and show mm. them to anybody who's not up to date with that kind of stuff. Plus, she wears the harness, which is a very good visual tell. It's this harness with a sign on it, you know, big yellow. Yeah, for most um, people, yeah. and and that's I think most people's exposure is you know on the back of most cabs in New South Wales is a picture of a a, a golden retriever <laughs> for guide dogs, which is there's two. Um, organizations that provide uh, assistance animals to visually impaired people in New South Wales. One is Guide Dogs, which is New South Wales only, I I believe, always has been. And there's Seeing Eye Dogs, where I got my dog from, both of my dogs. Um, And they're based in Melbourne, but they're a national organization. I believe that they were were the first, uh, one of the first in the world, um, organizations set up to um, use assistance dogs. One of the things that happened when I lost my sight, which happened in, a, in an event, uh, and I woke up and could only see about 5% of what I used to be able to see, and found it difficult to make sense of the little bit I could see, the size of my world changed dramatically overnight and you know my home where I know where everything is I I navigate quite well almost like I'm sighted Um, I can move around and interact with the stuff in there because I know where it is but when I go outside or to a place that I'm unfamiliar with um, I'm sure this is actually obvious from my behavior I become a lot more um, uncertain and kind of maybe even stumble around a bit. Do you notice that with me, Riley, (laughs) when I'm I'm in uh, alien places or out in the world? Yeah, sometimes it depends on, obviously, the environment. You know, there's... I mean, with you, I mean, you could sometimes just trip on something or hit your head on something just in your apartment, you know, and that's just the nature of... um, Because of... Yeah, the limitation of... Yeah, I run into doors um, and cabinets and um, I have all these uh, adaptions to my apartment to stop me from repeatedly walking into doors and... But then when things change, when things get shifted and you might not realise that's when things can get thrown off kilter and you're more likely to stumble over something or even just, yeah, 
the well, rug or the chair or whatever it might well, be. Well, something interesting started to happen to me after I... Um, I can remember being in the rehab ward and walking around and I realised even at that stage that even though I couldn't uh, see certain things, I could sense them in other ways. And I actually recognised almost straight away that I had the ability to sense where there was an opening or a doorway. And how... Can you describe that? Well, I th- part of the sense is definitely directed towards sound so i think i could sense the pressure levels now there's always an ambient sound wherever you are even in a very quiet Mm. place and there are shifts to that ambience when there's a window or a doorway or a passage leading somewhere else that's right so it's actually a psychoacoustic effect Mm. and there's probably more to it (laughs) than that but um that's one of the aspects of it is so it's a um yeah i think it's got to do with psychoacoustics and hearing it's the bat it's the bat navigation. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's how I like to describe my vision now is I, I'm literally as blind as a bat. So I do have vision as bats do, but it's it's not that functional for me um, all the time. Mm. And do you ever like imagine the layout? So when you have this sense of like that acoustic kind of change that you're mentioning, do you then sort of imagine like, okay there's a doorway there do you do a little kind of immediate mapping oh i actually have my whole world or maybe that's not correct (laughs) completely true a large part of my uh, thinking about my environment surrounding environment is actually an imagined sort of map Mm. inside my Mm. mind so i've actually was very good as a kid at orienteering i was very good at navigating by map um and when I used to drive, I used to have no problem navigating with maps. I didn't have to turn them upside down. I just had to look at them and internalize them. And mm-hmm. then I could access that from inside my head. And I think that serves me well now. And that's one of the things that happens at home mm. is that I, I remember where everything is. So it's actually mapped out in mm. my head. So I'm really more accessing my internal underst- yeah. um, vision of the world than actually the what I'm getting through my eyes. And I- Obviously, it's very uh, necessary for you to maintain a place for everything and everything in its place, kind of that principle of, you know... As you not... found, <laughs> being at my place. Well, you know, my, my grandfather's the, the same way, but it obviously has, like, a specific utility for you in uh, with dealing with those, those visual, uh, yeah, limitations... Yep, which is always a challenge when we're going away to these uh, alien places. Um, But the trip we're going to talk about today was to a place up the Hawkesbury. And the Hawkesbury River is a place I passed through my whole life on trains and was always fascinated with that um, area around Gosford and Sydney and Hornsby. The, um, those little humpies. (laughs) Have you seen those little, um... A very old sort of... Um, Were they buildings? Well, they're kind of houses, but they're sort of shacks, you know, with... And you would see them along the Hawkesbury, along the train tracks. You'd look over the other side and you'd see this little house down on the water and there were no roads going yeah, there. Yeah. there were, and you'd I'm, see like a boat parked at mm. a, a, a pontoon. They're like sort of sheds and... Yeah, they're just people who have just gone into the scrub and it's crown land, I'd imagine, and built these structures in the same way that... They were all up up and down the coast of the National Park south of Sydney around Gowrie. Um, 
apparently built, you know, in the 1920s and 30s um, by people, and they were inhabited. I'm not sure whether anybody still lives there because I believe that the the government introduced uh, legislation to stop these dwellings being handed down to family members um, and I think that most of the residents now have passed away and those buildings have now been reclaimed by the Crown uh, but getting back to the Hawkesbury it was always <laughs> I was always used to fantasise about living in those places as I right. looked at them on the trains and always went through um, passed through Brooklyn and I'm not sure whether that's the only station that's Actually, on the Hawkesbury. It's called it Hawkesbury River Station. Right. And, um, but yeah, the suburb where we stayed was, um, yeah, called Brooklyn. Not to be confused with America, um, New York. But, uh. It has an island. <laughs> yeah, it does. The Dangar Island, I believe they call it. Indeed. And we traveled there as well. But we landed in, in Brooklyn, I think it was, um, it was raining, wasn't it, Riley? Um, yeah, I think it was, it was a drizzly time. I think it was winter. Uh, let's see now, because I've, um, I've kept a list of, of everywhere we've gone to. So, it was the first place that we traveled after the first lockdown. So, in 20, it was June 2020 that we went. And we pre-booked a little hotel. Yeah, they called it um, the Brooklyn Motel. And so the thing that I think was really amazing about Hawkesbury River Station is that, uh, and I'd never encountered this before, but when you get off the train, one side of the train track, you're just looking right at the water. So, you know, it's virtually just on the water, this this train station it's an amazing vista because it's up quite high when you when you get on the overpass that goes over the tracks and look down into the the bank with the old sort of jetties poking mm. out and uh, yeah quite an amazing vista and i took some uh, yeah. quite spectacular pictures there from yeah. the train station no it was a great it was a great look to it and you know there's it's only got like a population of would you say 300 people or thereabouts? That's, uh, according to Wiki, about yeah. 300 people live there. Um, and this this place where we stayed was very cosy. And... Yeah, not many... I think there was a hotel and a... Ours, was it a hotel? Ours was a motel. A motel, yeah. yeah and the hotel the was called the Angler's Rest, which is where we'd go and get pub food and that kind of thing. Um, and where we saw a poem on the wall. Yeah, well, we the poem I believe was um, in our room. Ah, oh, was it? Yeah, I know. I know we saw it up on the wall somewhere. And the interesting thing is, we we met the author of that poem. We did, yeah. So he's this gentleman who was a local. Uh, he is a local, presumably, and you know, raised there. And uh, we just started chatting to him when he was sitting at the bottom of. The steps, and he had a good vibe to him, a friendly sort of a guy. And obviously, yeah, it came up somehow that he was a poet, so we decided to immortalize a recitation of the very poem that was hanging on the uh, bedroom wall in the motel. Yeah, we did some uh, wandering around down amongst the wharfs, and there's actually a great 
um, lots of paths to walk on around where a lot of the boats are the moored mm. and there's a few shops in there and we came across uh, this bloke sitting under a tree um, having a drink sitting under a tree I'm not sure whether he was with some other folk there when we walked past but we just started talking to him and he was quite a character <laughs> mm. and we later found out that he was um, he grew up there in a, in a house yeah. right near the motel where we were staying. Mm. And he s launched into poetry. I'm not sure whether we did that when we were talking to him in the park, but we invited him back um, to the hotel. That's and right. And we got him to recite his poem. We got a recording of that, which we're going to play yeah. for, for you. Hawkesbury, the place in Australia that's dearest to be, flows from the mountains and shares with the sea. For miles and miles this place twists and winds, hiding treasures and pleasures for whoever who finds. It's abundant with wildlife, birds, reptiles and fish, and the most succulent oysters, crabs and prawns if you wish. Though she can rage like the rapids when the rains let her flood, or be as calm as a mill pond, just gets in your blood. Every turn is a picture you'll never see twice. She rearranges and changes like everything nice. Sheer cliffs and farmlands at different mileposts, even rustic old houses that are said to hold ghosts. Spencer Pub is a mangrove tree Scattered seats underneath, which shade the Oruba folk below a good crop of leaf. Yes, the old Hawkesbury River is the place I love best, and I'll always return there to honour my zest. And I'm sure our friend the poet is still at Brooklyn, probably sitting under that tree today, getting out of the rain. And I hope he's well. Enjoying that flagon. So one of the places that we went to um, on our, the second day there was uh, Dengar Island, right, John? Yeah, we didn't want to miss out on that one. It's um, right there. We got the ferry over. We got the ferry and I loved the ferry trip. It was fantastic. It was beautifully still. There were fishing trawlers. Uh, driving alongside us as we motored out from the jetty. There were seagulls following the fishing boats. There was the smell of fish in the air and fish row. Maybe a little bit of uh, decomposing something or other. All of those um, smells of the, the, bay. the bay and rivers and oceans. Yes, a very organic uh, mix. Um, and it was a beautiful trip out to the island which you can see from Brooklyn out there oh, takes about five ten minutes yeah so the the island itself um, has a fairly large population right yeah compared to Brooklyn which is you know three odd hundred uh, I believe there's a couple of thousand people live on Dangar Island and you took some good photos there as well right 
Yeah, I took some footage as we walked around. There's a sort of a ring road that um, runs around and it's quite heavily populated um, with houses, blocks, just like in the, a city suburb, um, one, uh, one next to the other. It's quite bushy, uh, lots of trees, um, lots of nice smells, but a lot of people there. Compared to walking around Brooklyn itself, where the, it's a lot more spread out, the people are a lot more spread out. Uh, the houses are, and there's some nice old um, colonial style houses um, spread out around Brooklyn. Um, so that uh, particular, yeah, we just did a day trip with that walk, and you know, took um, the dog and everything, took Ivy, and when we got back, we had a, we went to the cafe just at the wharf there on Dango Island and um, so that was our sort of outing but you know outside of that and those encounters there it was a very you know uneventful sleepy little place but we did get some good walks in yeah my um, highlight was the castle there is a castle on Dango Island um, right at the top which uh, looks like it's actually somebody has built a house around it it's right near the bowling club. They have a bowling club up there. Mm. Um, very civilised community there on Dangar Island. Um, but a fascinating structure with uh, turrets and uh, little holes for them to fire their bow and arrows through. Obviously a, a very, very old sandstone uh, structure and um, a bit of a mystery since it's not really mentioned in any of the uh, information that I've looked up so far. I'm sure there's a story there though. Like everywhere else, Dangar Island was inhabited by human beings when the British um, arrived on the scene. And I believe the island was called Mullet Island because there were so many mullet fish in the area. And it was renamed after the indigenous people were moved on. I think there's some story of a smallpox epidemic Oh, which claimed a lot of local people. Those people being the Darug and the Darkin Jung. And after they moved on, the island was taken over by the Dangar family and used in the construction of the railway. Um, perhaps that bridge, which is very close to mm. the island. Um, and then it was owned by them up until the 1920s. I believe, where it was uh, zoned residential, probably set up the way, much the way it is now. So there's that, it comes from that industry, then there's a lot of that uh, history of, of uh, the, the rail line. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Indeed. Wherever you go, you find the railroad tracks. <laughs> mm. Well, we've reached that time to go for a song break. And I thought, in keeping with the travel theme today... We could have Wayfaring Stranger by Johnny Cash. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger. Traveling through this world below 
There is no sickness, no toil nor danger in that bright land to which I go. I'm going there to see my father and all my loved ones who've gone on. I'm just going over Jordan. I'm just going over home. clouds will gather around me I know my way is hard and steep but beauteous fields arise before me where God redeems their vigils keep That you'd meet me when I come. So I'm just going over Jordan. I'm just going over home. I'm just going over Jordan. Just go. So perhaps that song would have been better suited to our death episode, but a beautiful <laughs> tune, nonetheless. Uh, Johnny Cash from his American Part Three album, and his wonderful body of work uh, in the last few years of his life. Yeah, that's the era that I'm more familiar with. Those. Um, last uh, four albums that he released before his death and then the two that came out posthumously that were all uh, produced by Rick Rubin and had a fantastic, uh, much more melancholy kind of vibe to them. It's more stripped back and, yeah. Soulful. Soulful, that's it. So, John, you were going to tell us about some of the utility that uh, photographs actually have for you. So. Yes, um, one of the things that makes the bit of vision I have very different from the vision I used to have or the vision that most people have, the way they see the world and the way they see things flow or time flow, is for me, nothing flows. Everything is sort of like um, in freeze frame. I see things as pictures 
Um, and if things move around, they disappear for me. So things will disappear and then reappear, which is one of the reasons why I need uh, someone with me. Uh, Riley helps me out when I'm out about in the big, wide, dangerous world where cars and people and animals move around of their own volition. <laughs> and for me, um, that means they just disappear and reappear um, quite unexpectedly. So... Um, I think I dream, I do dream with uh, full motion, <laughs> I was thinking about that before the show, and I definitely have uh, dreams that appear to be movie-like, um, but the uh, most of my memories of what happened um, are snapshots, mm. um, and this is why I love a photograph, because it, um, for me, looking at something takes time, it takes me time to work my way around whatever's in front of me and for it to me to derive uh, meaning and concepts out of it. It's uh, one of the main problems I have when I'm out trying to engage with the world, which is constantly in motion, uh, constantly moving on. Um, so I love my photographs and I've got some great photos from um, that, that trip to Brooklyn. And many more to discuss that we shall perhaps discuss down the line. But we've reached the end of this show now, folks. But we look forward to being back with you next week on Breaking Waves. We'll see you all then in uh, another week. Bye-bye for now. Bye. You're listening to People Powered Radio, proudly supported by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The Community Broadcasting Foundation resources community-owned and operated media stations just like this one that connect people and tell vital local stories so that we all enjoy a more vibrant, inclusive Australian culture and healthy democracy. Find out more about our work at cbf.com.au.